0: All right, church. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans, Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I tell you, the more I use these glasses, the smaller the print gets when I'm not wearing them. It's a conspiracy. It's not good. Empty. I don't appreciate it. That's, that's just totally unnecessary. It's totally unnecessary. I'm glad you find that amusing, Linda. <laughs> Isn't it true? The more you use glasses, the more you actually need them, and then you've got to go from one thick lens to another. It's, it's messed up. It's just messed up. I'm, I'm, I'm actually pausing because I'm, I'm thinking as to whether I'm going to put these on my face or not. Because if I don't, I may have struggle. If I do, I'm going to have to... Lord have mercy, what a what a crisis. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be reading through just a couple of verses. 14 through 17. 14 through 17. And hopefully it's a little early. So I've been giving a little extra time. I want to go through all of these verses. There's a lot of wonderful... Wonderful information in these verses. I hope that you have that leaflet. Hopefully you picked up one of the bulletins today. Hopefully you picked up um, one of the bulletins today and that you have inside one of these leaflets so that you can actually um, write down some notes. These verses are actually really, really cool today. Um, and before I begin, I do want to acknowledge at uh, least Uh, a family that we have with us here today. He don't know, he didn't know I was gonna do this. He's, he just looked up at me. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I got a personal friend of mine and his lovely family. Uh, Eldon and your family, would you please stand? Please. So that our congregation could give you a little love. Amen. So, you may be seated. Don't mess with him. You see his size, right? He's my bodyguard. He's my armor bearer. Now, actually, he's, um, he's one of the, um, he's the security guard or the sergeant, right? Sergeant now? Think um, of the courtyard apartments where I live. He's not actually there on that site anymore because of that promotion that he's received recently. But him and I, I would go out late nights and have wonderful conversations with him about the Lord. Amen. He loves the Lord and he promised that he would come. He is here, so when I'm done, don't let him get away. Don't let them get away. All right, somebody love on them. Say something to them, Amen. So, Romans chapter eight, verses fourteen through seventeen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to read that last one again. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thank you, Jesus. May the Lord always add blessings to the reading of his word. One of the points that we established a couple of weeks ago when I was before you, um, I think it was two weeks ago now. Um, <clears throat> is the idea regarding the debt that believers owe the Lord. You remember when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, we actually owe the Lord a debt. But obviously it's not a, it's not that type of debt that we can actually pay off. It's not that type of debt. It's not the debt associated with an attempt to earn what God has given us in Christ Jesus. We know in the church, if you've been around church long enough, you know that that would be legalism. Isn't that right? Read, read with me verses 12 and 13. Just to sort of uh, briefly touch on what we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Verses 12 and 13 reads, So then, brothers, we are debtors, is that word, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. Now that's sort of, it's not an exhortation, if you will. The word we used a couple weeks ago, in terms of the tone that Paul the Apostle is using, here is hortatory. i got to get this out of my mouth before I spit it out in front of you. The word is hortatory. And, it, 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 and that word means that it's, it's an urging on the part of the apostle for his readers to move toward some course of conduct or action. Hortatory. And that's applied to you and I here today as well. When we read verses like 12 and 13 and we get that idea concerning this, this life that we are supposed to lead because we are Christians... Paul the Apostle says in those verses that we are to, by the Spirit, put to death, what? That by His Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. By His Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's a strong encouragement. It was then to all of His readers and it applies to you and I here today as well. And the reason being is because we are children of God. The idea is that as believers we are expected to live a certain way. In the same way that Christ died and then rose again to new life, we too must die in order to experience salvation in Him. Now we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And I don't want to spend too much time there because there's a lot of material to cover today. But I do want to say this. When we think in terms of dying, what is it? That Paul the Apostle, or what is it the New Testament refers to when we are instructed to die. We talked about this at length um, thus far in the book of Romans. To die is to put this body, this sinful body our sinful nature to death. To surrender it over to God so that we can lead the Christian lives that we are supposed to lead before heaven. Amen, somebody. We are supposed to live as children of God. Look at verse 14. Because in today's text, the context is the same. It hasn't changed. There's an emphasis that Paul the Apostle makes in this passage um, of the Holy Spirit. That's the emphasis. The working of salvation by the Holy Spirit in our lives and the responsibility that you and I are supposed to take up. Believers must be different. Verse 14 reads, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I kind of cheated a little bit. That's the King James text. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, they, they are the sons of God. Number one, he's saying that as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, remember that, because that is the context of the passage, the working of the Holy Spirit. That as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, true believers possess a supernatural inclination for righteous living. It's not the only thing, but this is just one thing I wanted to point out. We possess an inclination for righteous living. It's a leading and equipping that the Holy Spirit makes possible in our lives. That's why the word led is used in the verses that we read once before. Is it possible for you and I as children of God here today, or in life in general, to to actually lead a life that is pleasing to God? Is it possible without the help of the Holy Spirit? It's not, in no way, shape or form. In fact, one of the preceding verses that we talked about here a couple weeks back, maybe a month ago, concerning this passage, is that Paul makes the, the clear distinction between believers and unbelievers. And he says concerning unbelievers, because they don't possess the Spirit of God, they cannot please God in no way, shape, or form. We cannot please God without the Spirit of God living within us. Because there is no salvation unless, of course, the Spirit of God dwells within us. And secondly, it's because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we should stand out from the rest as believers. Look at the verse again. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, says they, they, the emphasis is on those of us who have given our lives over to Jesus. And as a result of that commitment or that Consecration that we should stand out from the best from the rest. We should be there should be a distinction between you and I from the rest of society. How many agree with that? There should be a distinction because we are children of God. I got here a sub point, and is that fruit, and it's the, the visible distinction that separates believers from unbelievers. Paul talked about that. Peter talked about that. Jesus, in fact, every author in the New Testament, in the Bible period, mentions that. The, the idea of fruit bearing. Jesus said, if you abide in me, and I abide in you, etc., 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 you will bear much fruit. And every tree, or rather every branch, that doesn't bear fruit. What's it good for, Jesus said? It's good only to be cut down and to be thrown in the fire. You and I, as children of God, are expected to bear fruit. So it doesn't matter who's coming or going from church or what we are saying in that process to convince one another of what we stand for. At the end of the day, genuine believers are recognized by the fruit they are expected. That's the operative term there. By the fruit they are expected to display because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In our lives. I remember long ago before I came to faith in Christ Jesus, uh, because of the religious persuasion in my home at the time, it was a cesspool of religious persuasion. My mother allowed for Jehovah's Witnesses to come in on Wednesdays who gave us Bible studies. And on Sundays we went off to the Catholic Church. Uh, it was a mega Catholic church in the community. And then on some other days, there was a Mormon who came and visited us. Mama, I, I think I mentioned this once before. My mom believed that, you know, you got to get a little bit of everything, right? It, listen, it's not Bible. She was wrong. And I would tell her to her face today. She was absolutely wrong. It was actually dangerous, right? But the point is that because of that religious influence on my life, I believed that I was okay with God. Is that the case at all? Does religion justify us before God? In no way, shape, or form. We're justified when we accept Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Isn't that right, Roger? Jesus Christ alone for the remission of our sins. And when we do so, genuinely we receive the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite authors, um, commentary writers, is um, John Murray. And I'm going to, I got a number of quotes from him here for you today. The first one is concerning this point that I just made. Quote, the believer's death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying. That's an archaic word, right? It's a word that refers to. Killing the body or killing the flesh. I'm going to start again. The believer's death to the law and sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. In other words, being saved does not give us a license to sin. It allows us to overcome it. And and that happens because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. So if we're not careful, we can easily involve ourselves in shallow religion. How many ever been there? How many of you ever experienced shallow religion, empty religion? Religion that has no life substance in it? That's what I'm talking about. The the, the believer or the individual who claims to have faith in Christ, who doesn't have salvation, does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That religion is shallow, it is empty. Jesus, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be reading just two verses, verse 33 and 35. Matthew 12, the hazard of shallow or empty religion. Say amen when you find it. Okay. it says, look at verse 33, and then we'll jump to verse 35. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. He was kind of rebuking the Pharisees. They did not know him, and yet they, they were justifying themselves because they were extremely religious. They gave out, they gave out money during the day, they stood on the corners, etc., and they prayed often publicly so that people can look upon them and recognize their piety. But the reality is that they were empty. Jesus rebuked them and said, he said to them, you generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak any good thing? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, you don't know me. The words that you're using here today, they may sound good, but you're just a whitewashed tomb. A whitewashed tomb. And he says, you need to make up your mind. You're either going to be evil or be good. But this sort of in-between thing that you're trying to experience it's, it's not valid. It doesn't work. you're empty, you are a hypocrite. That's what he called them. He called them a hypocrite. You don't know me, My spirit doesn't dwell in you. <laughs> Therefore, in today's text, go back to today's text, Paul is not, not only saying that believers are distinguished as believers by the fruit the Holy Spirit helps them produce. But that believers are expected to allow the Holy Spirit to govern their lives. Did you hear that? Believers are expected to allow the Holy Spirit to govern their lives. That is why Paul wrote in that verse, For all who are led by the Spirit of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. You see the, distinguished, the, the distinction that Paul the Apostle is making there. Unbelievers are not led by the Spirit of God. Believers are. And that's that hortatory statement, that encouragement, that urging by Paul the Apostle. Now in the following verse, verse 15, Paul's aim was to place additional emphasis on why we are able to live godly lives. Why we are able to live godly lives. This is in fact additional information about the Holy Spirit, the operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Read, follow along with me. Verse 15, Romans 8. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I spent a whole lot of reading these past two weeks, especially because I was down that last week. I couldn't come to church. Uh, Most of you know I was sick. I was bedridden for a few days there. But I've done some reading, and I've read um, the works of um, Murray, of course, and a guy named uh, Theologian in the past named Hodge, and Calvin, and I've done some reading. And this one particular verse, I just read, I'll read to you what I have here. It says, some expositors refer to two spirits. I want you to look at the verse again, because I may have lost you. I want you to read it. Look at verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, dot, dot, dot. Some expositors actually say that Paul's referring to two spirits in that text. Two. Two, one, the spirit of bondage, and secondly, the Holy Spirit himself. But then there are other people who are saying something totally different. To me, it's off the wall. Others interpret the word. Others interpret the word "spirit" in one or in both cases as a reference to temperament, temperament only, not an actual spirit, meaning your mental disposition. For example, if um, if you ask me, if you were to ask me how I'm doing, and I say to you, "I'm cool, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm feeling pretty cool," what am I referring to? Is it, am I actually telling you that I'm cold? No, not at all. It's my temperament. I'm okay. Things are well in my life. So some of the expositors that I read are actually saying that it refers to a temperament there. That Paul wasn't referring to a spirit at all. They just, I I don't even know why I spent time reading reading that stuff. I don't subscribe to those views. I agree with Murray here. In this one particular passage, and I'm going to read something to you, because what he goes on to say is that he gives, he says that what we have here in this verse is a description of the Holy Spirit, who he is and who he is not. It's a reference to one spirit. Murray paraphrases the verse by saying, quote, you did not receive the Holy Spirit as a spirit of bondage, but as a spirit of adoption. Did you see that? I'm going to read it again. You did not receive the Holy Spirit as a spirit of bondage, but as a spirit of adoption by whom we have become children of God. Does that make sense? I like that one. Makes more sense, doesn't it? Number one, speaking only of the Holy Spirit in this verse, Paul writes that he is not a spirit of bondage who fosters a relapse. Back into fear. Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. Right? He says, he uses the word fear referring to what? Think about that for a moment. What's he referring to when he says fear, that condition? He's talking about the life that you were leading or the experience that you were having in your life before you gave your life over to Jesus Christ. What an awful time in our lives that was. I don't know about you, but that was absolutely horrible time to live a life outside of faith and crying. I can tell you this, crying. I mean, what a horrible time that is! Not to experience the abundant life. I'm not talking about money and possessions and all, but just that assurance. Because when we get saved, the Holy Spirit he kind of he kind of unfolds the promises of God on the inside. There's this life. Substance that you could almost touch with your hands. And it's amazing. How many of you know what I'm talking about here this morning? Huh? It's amazing to know the Lord. It's amazing to experience the, the life, power, and presence of God, the Holy Spirit, within us, who moves us, He leads us and guides us and instructs us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. When we don't have Him, what do we have? We just have religion. A way of life, but not the way of living life. So, in using the word fear, he's talking about the condition that we were in before becoming Christians. And yet, concerning the Holy Spirit, he, we know that according to the Word of God, He exists within us to bring about godly change. Again, I want you to look at verse 13. That is why verse 13 reads... But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit helps us. In fact, the Holy Spirit makes sanctification a reality in our lives. The initial transition into Christendom, sanctification, and the process, the life that we are now living in Christ Jesus, every single day that I apply myself to the word of God, that I apply myself to the things that pertain to God, every single day God draws me just a little bit closer to him. I'm not talking about being any more saved than I was the day I got saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about being stronger, being more faithful, being more honorable, less hang-ups, less difficulties, less stress for my wife. Lord, she will hear she say amen to that. Oh, she would. She would. i drive her up the walls with frostbite. That's a quote from, um, how many of you ever heard Bananas? That, that Christian comedy show? No, nobody? I, I beep one. I got one. The rest of you, check it out. You got to look it up. It's called Bananas. Christian comedy. Really cool. Really funny. Clean jokes. <laughs> Clean jokes. So the second point concerning this verse, verse 15. I'm going to read verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. I like that. Paul writes that he is the spirit of adoption. In the sense that it was through him that we received our adoption as children of God. That's extraordinary to me. The Holy Spirit brought about... The adoption. That is not saying that he is the agent of adoption. We're going to find out in a moment. I want you to turn over with me to Galatians chapter four verse six. I don't think it's on. I don't think I put it. Oh yeah. Okay. The the reference is there, but I want you to see it. I want you to see it with me. Turn to Galatians four six, because it is a parallel passage to this one, at least to this one particular verse, Romans eight fifteen. Because I want to make a point concerning how adoption takes place. At least in terms of who's responsible for it. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The emphasis is that God sent the Holy Spirit. So ultimately God is responsible for the adoption. The Holy Spirit is not the agent of adoption. The office, that office belongs to the Father. The Holy Spirit brings to pass the Father's work within us. The Holy Spirit brings to pass the work of the Father within us. He is I heard somebody once put it this way, the Holy Spirit is the administrator of the gospel This side of heaven. Another quote from John Murray. He writes, quote, he is called the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption, not because he is the agent of adoption, but because it is he who creates in the children of God the reverential love and confidence by which they are able to cry Abba Father and by whom we are able to exercise the rights and privileges of God's children. The Holy Spirit is responsible for it. If you are enjoying salvation today, it is because of the Holy Spirit. I want to share a few verses along this line. Because I want you to see this from various angles. And I want you to bear with me, but we're going to do a little Bible study right now, right? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Look that up. The references are on your screen. But I want you to look it up with me. Second Corinthians 3, 17. Tracy, here. Oh, in the nursery. Can they hear in there? No. Well, tell a story. Second Corinthians three seventeen. It says, "Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." I want you to underline or highlight. Do whatever you need to do with that word freedom. The word freedom, because what a wonderful freedom it is, right? We rejoice about salvation and the constant daily experience of abiding in Him, and that's the reason why we are able to cry out to God, Abba Father. How many ever experienced that? Maybe not so much in those words, right? I mean, I don't, those words do not necessarily resonate with me. It's just a figure of speech referring to this, this this life, this inclination that we possess in our souls and in our spirits when we truly are saved. That's that affirmation, the confirmation. We're going to get to that in a few moments. But that confirmation that exists within us, that, that indeed we are children of the Most High God. And it's not the case with other religions. Religion cannot offer that confirmation. Religion is unable to offer that type of affirmation. It just can't because there's nothing to... Religion, there's nothing to religion. Second verse, Philippians four, four through seven. I know you got it on the screen, so you probably got your page open, right? It says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I would say, rejoice. Underline that word, rejoice. It doesn't matter what you're going through today. It doesn't matter where you've been. What what you think is going to unfold in your new future? It just doesn't matter. The bill collector, the issues in the marriage, the issues with finances. Paul the Apostle stresses the point that we can rejoice in spite of all of those things. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. He's going to help us. It's not always going to be cloudy over our heads, metaphorically speaking. The issue that exists now is not always going to exist. The problems that exist at the moment are not always going to exist. The point Paul says, rejoice, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand, or let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, underline that one, in some things, no, it says in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, another word you can underline, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, is going to get better. And the idea here, of course, which is what I've mentioned already, is that it doesn't matter what we're going through. The Holy Spirit has given us life, an abundant life that we can rejoice about. John chapter 14, 26 and 27 says, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, underline that. Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, underline that one. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then underline those last words. Let not your heart be troubled Neither let them be afraid. All that in the context of the Holy Spirit. Jesus just finished talking about that. I'm listen. It behooves you that I go away. Peter kind of got a little bit upset right when Jesus started talking like that. He said, well, "Wait a minute! Don't be talking about death here in my presence. I rebuke you." And and what did you, Jesus say? Listen, get there behind me, Satan. Get they behind me saying, you don't, you don't know what I'm talking about. It, it, it behooves you that I go away because when I go away, I get to send you a comforter. Or the comforter. If I go away, I'm going to send you my spirit, my presence... The fulfillment of so many prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm going to send you someone who will be with you always. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to instruct you. He's going to remind you of my words. And he's going to give you all the strength that you need to live life to the fullest according to my will for your life. Amen, somebody. That's the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives. How many love the Holy Spirit this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In the following verse, we're going to move towards verse 16, but I want you to listen to this. Because in the following verse, Paul states something powerful about the way salvation is confirmed. This is very important because this doesn't exist in religion. It only exists in Christianity. He says something powerful about the way salvation is confirmed. When we think about religions outside of Christianity, have you ever realized that they don't guarantee or affirm salvation to their followers? Those followers simply have to hope for the best. I I grew up a Catholic. Catholics have to contend with purgatory. There's no confirmation of salvation there. You got to hope for the best. On the other side of purgatory. Muslims. They have to hope one day that their good deeds outweigh their bad ones. There's no confirmation of salvation there. There is none. It cannot be. Buddhists and Hindus alike. Hope to one day be saved after the end of their cycle of death death and rebirth. Death and rebirth. Death and rebirth. Rebirth. And they have to hope. The point is, there's no confirmation or affirmation of salvation in those faiths. And it's the same thing with any other religion outside of Christianity. It's the same thing. Only Jesus in Christianity offers confirmation of salvation. He does so immediately. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you get it? the spirit himself not the spirit itself if you have a bible that reads itself then you may want to think about getting another one the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god the uniqueness of the uniqueness of the christian faith is that we received and we receive an immediate confirmation of salvation by The Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit communicates adoption to us. He communicates that to us. It's not an audible voice, right? It's not something that we have to generate by some mystical means it's not a conclusion that we reach because we come to church often enough or that we give money often enough no, none of that serves as affirmation of salvation none of those things but it gets better it's not a conclusion because we because we a, com, a conclusion that we reach because we pray a prayer with someone either not at all it's a part of it the Bible actually instructs us to pray with one another and to lead people to Christ. And that does involve a prayer of faith. But the prayer of faith doesn't guarantee affirmation. Repentance does. How many of you have ever prayed with somebody, prayed a prayer with somebody, and you and I, because we do that, right? We, I, I include myself in that process. I prayed that prayer, a sinner's prayer, with thousands of people in the last 25 years. And in many of those cases, I've declared them saved in my limited understanding. But the truth is that a person is confirmed or affirmed as a believer only when true repentance has been experienced on the part of the individual saying a prayer. The words are meaningless if the heart is not involved or engaged in that process. How many know what I'm talking about? If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. And if there's no repentance, it doesn't matter how many words you repeat. Doesn't matter how many times you come down the aisle. It just doesn't matter. You're going to stay the same. So, we in the church, we are accustomed to declaring people to be saved when the reality is that affirmation of salvation in a person's life, the Holy Spirit's going to confirm it. If that person has truly been saved, there's going to be a communication that takes place like that. Now, granted, with limited knowledge, we're not always able to 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 thoroughly, adequately understand, right, what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us. That's why we need to gather like this together as believers. But the Holy Spirit doesn't decommunicate. And if salvation is present in your life, there will be fruit on display on your part for the rest of us to see. And to gauge and determine. Not that I need that. I don't need it personally. But fruit should be on display. So says Jesus Christ. Salvation is confirmed when we experience within us the witness born by the Holy Spirit himself. Read the verse with me again. It says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's not an audible voice. It's a spiritual dialogue between spirit and spirit. Amen. And it usually takes place in a form of God's unfolding promises in our hearts. When I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, I gave my heart to Him. You know this all too well. In a prison cell in 1989, and listen, it was instantaneous. It was. Inst- I was a devil and a half. I was a devil and a half, but it was instantaneous. I felt this assurance on the inside of me. I tell you, I could slice, it was, the, the Lord filled the room and I can slice it with a knife. That's how thick it felt. This, and I felt immediately this overwhelming sensation or sensitivity. Something that I had never, never, never experienced before. It was that confirmation that God was giving me by His Spirit. That indeed, that indeed, I had experienced Salvation. It's not just the unfolding of God's promises. But it's the, the enveloping, if we can use that word, of a different type of love. A different type of love. How many of you really knew love before you gave your heart to Jesus Christ? I mean really knew love. Maybe a certain type of love. Philosophy. Right? Reciprocity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Eros. If, you've, if you were married before you gave your heart to Jesus, then you knew that type of love too, right? That, that love that exists between a man and a woman and holy matrimony. In holy matrimony. Did, did you get that? Um, and what's the other one? Agape, yes, but the, the, there's another one. Forge. Um, help me out here, Roy. Storgay, there you go. I knew it. I knew it. He was holding out on me. <laughs> Storge and uh, help me out here. What 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 kind of love is that? Oh man. He's not he's not gonna do it. All right, God. He says it's it's your sermon, Rick. It's your sermon. Anyway, you get my meaning, right? I want to read this to you. I know that we are quick to I know that we are quick to declare persons to be saved. After they pray a prayer with us, but the truth is, salvation is confirmed by the Holy Spirit only in the hearts of those who repent. This is one of the ideas that Paul has been addressing in this book so far. I want you to see this. Go to Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Say amen if you haven't. Romans 6, 1 through 4. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's the point? The point is that we have to give our lives over to Jesus Christ. We have to give Him our lives. So, moving on, I want you to look towards verse 17, Romans 8. So not only are we confirmed as children of God by the Holy Spirit, that confirmation actually serves... As the assurance, as the assurance of our future glory. Now again, let me reiterate what I stated once before. Remember how we talked about when when we cited the other religions and what they don't promise? Although their followers actually believe that they've been promised something, eternal life, but really do not promise? In Christianity, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's confirmation of our salvation, this side of heaven. I'm a child of God, this side of heaven, and I know that. But because of that confirmation, it's also the assurance of our future glory in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that so important to mention, to make note of? It's because you and I as believers, especially when we go through difficult times, we are capable of, how many, well, let me make the statement first, right, before I ask the question. How many of you are capable of losing sight Of God's promises when times are not, say, you're going through some difficult times in your life. We kind of tend to lose sight of the promises of God. And we kind of, oh, I'm not feeling the way I believe I should be feeling as a child of God. Therefore, am I really saved? How many of you, be, be honest, how many of you have questioned your salvation? When you know you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. So, that's my point. We go through some difficult times and we kind of lose sight of some important things. And we we, we sort of tend to believe the enemy when he comes alongside us. You don't really know Jesus. If you were a Christian, you won't be doing these things. If you were a Christian, you won't be talking like that. The reality is that we're not perfect, right? And this side of heaven, we're actually never going to be perfect. So the point is, if you know Jesus, and if you have received that confirmation, this side of heaven... That is also the assurance of your place in heaven with the Lord for eternity. One supports the other. You can't have one without the other. So it doesn't matter how bad your life looks today. If you know Jesus, if you know in your heart of hearts that you know Jesus, guess what? We're going to spend eternity together one day very soon. One day very soon. And Paul makes that point. He makes that point here. Read with me verse 17. I'm almost done. It says, and if children, that's right there, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a statement there at the end. We're going to get to that in a few moments, but let's just talk about that principle part that we just mentioned. I want you to look at verse 14 because it relates to the first half of. Of this verse 17. Verse 14. It says for all who are led by the spirit of God. Are the sons of God. For all who are led by the spirit of God. Are the sons of God. But in this verse. Verse 17. The only difference. Is that Paul now mentions the future. Of the believer. That's important to make mention of that. Even though you can infer that from verse 14. And it's safe to infer. Your future in Christ. From verse 14, it's just not overtly mentioned until verse 17. If you're a child of God, we will spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. Amen. Verse 17, he says, he said, if children, then heirs. Dot, dot, dot. If children, then heirs. In other words, if the Holy Spirit has confirmed your salvation... Then there's certain expectation is an inheritance in heaven. One is the guarantee of the other. I shouldn't have put heaven in there because we don't spend eternity in heaven. Right? It's not what the Bible teaches. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's going to be, I think, the new earth is going to be our eternity. Anyway, it's the thought that one day... A plan by God the Father regarding the redemption of mankind was put into motion. Paul writes that we are heirs of God. If we are children, then we are heirs of God. Here's John Murray again. Heirs of God can involve nothing less than that the sons of God are heirs of the inheritance which God himself has laid up for us. Which God himself has laid up for us. Think about that. We are his heirs and he is our inheritance. So if we die right now, my inheritance is not heaven. If you die right now, your inheritance is not heaven. Your inheritance is eternity with God the Father. That's a vast distinction. How many understood what I just stated? It's important to make that point. Because heaven is not my future. Yes, I'm going to spend my time, some time in heaven, and spend eternity with perfection. All that stuff is good. But there's nothing better than to think about it in terms of spending eternity with our Creator Himself. That's the point. And it's worth making that point. He is our inhabitants. Go to Psalm 73. I'm almost done. Psalm 73. Five more minutes. Five more minutes. Maybe ten. If you, maybe ten if you behave. If you hurry up, Psalm seventy-three. I got it in front of me. I can read it, but I'd rather you read it with me. Psalm seventy-three. Quickly, Lois. Quickly, Lois. She said, no. Nah, I'll, 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 I'll wait. I'll hear from you, Pastor. I will. Don't pick on me." She says, "Don't pick on me." Psalm seventy-three. got it, Caitlin? (laughs) Psalm 73. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. You should highlight portion forever. Heaven is not what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to spending eternity in the presence of my Father. That's what I'm looking forward to. And that's what King David emphasizes there. Now, there's a separate thought here. And the next thought concerns Christ. The reward of Christ was not... The reward of Christ was that He was glorified with the Father after He concluded His work here on earth. Look at John chapter 17. Go to John 17. Quickly, quickly. And I'm going to read 17, verse Romans eight seventeen once again, so that you, can, you don't lose um, your place with our context. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this is what we're getting at. Fellow heirs with Christ. John 17, verses 3 to 5. It says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, Jesus was praying to the Father. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, this is Jesus talking. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amazing. Jesus was given an assignment. He fulfilled his assignment. When he rose again from the dead, he was glorified with the Father in heaven. He received his Position back, if we could put it that way. Although it doesn't, it doesn't carry enough weight. Because our salvation is in Christ, joint heirs with Christ means that the children of God enter in jointly with Christ into the possession of the inheritance. Which, which was bestowed upon him. That's our reward for accepting him. But there's more. I want you to look at verse 17 again. Romans 8, 17. Because we're going to close off with this, um, this kind of difficult portion of Scripture to interpret. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. First time I looked at that, I said, I'm not touching that. I'm not not touching it. I'm just not doing it. They're not going to hear anything from me about that because how do we interpret that? Right? But I've done some reading. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is another element of Christianity that is fundamentally different or rather that separates Christianity from every other religion. It's challenging, but listen to this. This is the part that we are supposed to take ownership of concerning Christianity. Christianity is not made personal until this part is realized. Until we take ownership of it. Until we appropriate it. In fact, this is what I call the missing link of Christendom. Today, listen to this part. It has nothing to do, because some people read this passage, and I read some commentaries that kind of give the impression that you have to contribute to this salvation process. And listen, you get a commentary set like that, you open the window, you throw it out, right? You throw it out. Because there's nothing we can do to earn our place in heaven. You can't earn salvation. So what's he saying? It says, provided we, look at the verse again. It says, provided we... Where am I? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It kind of gives the impression that we have to do something to earn. Has nothing to do with that. Has nothing to do with contributing to the accomplishment of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, or any other T-I-O-N word. Right? It, It just... It has nothing to do with that. Christ alone redeemed us by his blood, and we know that, right? It is neither related to self-flagellation. It's important to mention this, because there are a lot of relig- religions in this world that actually teach that you, kinda, kinda, you, you have to kind of discipline yourself, right? How many of you ever heard of that, self-flagellation? Where you've got to kind of beat sin out of your life, and, and that's the sanctification process, that's demonic, if you ask me. It just has nothing to do with the faith. To me, this is related to taking ownership of the gospel in this cruel and dark world. Taking ownership of the gospel. And that relates to what I've stated already about repentance. If you haven't repented, then you're not saved. Is it possible for unsaved people to be sitting in a pew just like this? For the entire life, of, of course it is. If they haven't repented, is it possible for you to be unsaved and yet know all about relig- all about Christianity? When to stand, when to sit, when to give, when not to give? Of course, it's possible to be acquainted with the faith or with Christianity from that religious standpoint, but not truly know Him in your heart. And I believe that is the substance of what Paul is stating here. To be intentional. I got some verses. Go to the next screen. If you want to take a picture of that. If you can write quickly enough. Please do so. Because I'm out of time. As Christians we're supposed to be intentional. With our faith. It's about, it's about taking ownership of the gospel. This side of heaven. Provided we suffer with Him. It's about denying ourselves, turning our lives over to God. And knowing that we've done so. If that hasn't taken place in your life, then you probably aren't saved. And these are very important verses. To be intentional, John four twenty three and 24. Where Jesus was talking, He's talking about that, that, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth to be committed. Mark eight thirty-four. I call that the cost of discipleship. Those verses. If you don't write any any other verse down, make sure you write down Mark eight, thirty-four through thirty-eight. That's a key passage right there. And to have our minds made up, Philippians four eight through nine, to be willing to stand up for truth, Hebrews ten twenty-three, to die for Jesus, Romans twelve one and two and to be separate from the world. We don't often like to consider that particular passage 2 Corinthians 6:14 through 18 because that's uh, we don't we just don't like to hear that there's supposed to be a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And Paul talks about that right there in that passage. That's another very important passage that relates with that clause in verse 17. And lastly to endure or to stand firm. Can I get the worship team to come down at this time? I'm going to close with a quote. Another quote from my friend, John Murray. Is that all right, Roy? Whatever floats my boat, right? Whatever floats my boat. I'm going to do it anyway. That's right. John Murray says, There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in His sufferings. Sufferings and, then, sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. The same order applies to those who are heirs with him. We have to give our lives up. Stand with me, church. Let us pray together. I hope that you appreciate these verses today. There's more content that I can than I can actually... Uh, convey to you in a setting like this—it's just impossible. Bow your heads with me. Let us pray together. Bow your heads with me. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Bow your heads with me. This is a serious moment for you, for you, because this is the moment at the close of this service when God is asking you to consider your faith. Haggai one seven. Haggai one five. Haggai nine. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There ought to be a distinction between you and the unbeliever you know. When a stranger walks up to you and your friend who doesn't know Jesus, that stranger should be able to recognize a difference in you as a child of God. There's a difference. Live the Christian life. Make sure there's fruit on display for all to see. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you so much for this message and for your presence in our lives. Thank you so much for the understanding you've given us. Help us to search the Scriptures, to dig a little deeper for ourselves as individuals. Find out what it is You have to say to us what more you can share with us from this particular passage. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved, Father God, unto you. So that one day, not just living it out today, but so that we may share it. So we may convey it, interpret it. So we may share it with the dying world around us. Help us, Father, to to be doers of the word. And not just here is deceiving our own selves. May you see fruit in our lives today. And may we be bold enough to put our fruit in display for the rest of the world to see as well. We thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 so much for your presence in our lives. And thank you so much for this place. For giving it to us. A place that we can visit as often as we choose. To fellowship with one another for the purpose of worshiping you and doing so intentionally. Father, we love you. Please bless us as we go our separate ways. Please watch over us. Bless the food that we're going to eat this afternoon. Bless our fellowship, the networking. Bless us, Father God. We love you and we praise you. We magnify your holy name in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. See you. If you're interested, uh, remember that this afternoon at 4 o'clock we have our congregational prayer meeting. God bless you guys.